Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 4, Episode 12, Chris Angel is a Douchebag. Let's get this show on the road. The only reference I get from this is the fact that this Jeb character this week was very clearly a Chris Angel stand-in, like, even though they referenced Chris Angel existing in the universe. I just find it really funny that he's a stand-in and, like, a poor man's version of him at the same time. Which is definitely weird. And then, like, the douchebag part is just the fact that the three old retired guys were just calling people douchebags the whole episode. I don't think there's another more, like, unique outside-of-universe reason. Like, we've had other titles that are, like, rips or riffs on, like, existing movie or franchises or, like, famous quotes. This is just, this character is like Chris Angel, and they just keep calling everyone douchebags, so Chris Angel's a douchebag is the episode title. Which I kind of love. There's a lot of lenses to look at this episode through. We're going to look at one of them today, but another one would be through the lens of, like, toxic masculinity, in my opinion. Before you segue us into the recap, I need to steal the spotlight for half a second. Sure. First of all, all three of the main trio of older friends looked very familiar to me, and I had to look them all up, and only two of them really, you know, had something that like I got connected with. Jay, our lead character this episode, essentially, was Brad from Rocky Horror Picture Show. I know it's factually correct, but I refuse it entirely. That is not possible. Jay broke me this episode. I have not legitimately had to pause an episode of Supernatural to date to go get tissues because I was tearing up until this episode. I've had emotional reactions. I've had very strong emotional reactions, but legitimately brought to actual, like, tears, Jay wins. So to have... To have the actor behind Jay also be that jerk from Rocky Horror Picture Show is, like, it kills me how much of a good actor that makes him. Well, damn it, Janet. Oh, God, I knew you were going to go there. And then the other really quick one I have, though, is a really weird connection. So, do you remember last week what code names the brothers used when they were posing as home inspectors? Honestly, no. It was uh, Babar and Stanwyck. Which apparently is a reference to a film called Fletch, where the main character, played by Chevy Chase, and another uh, investigator working with him, use those fake names to pose as doctors. And the other leading actor in the movie Fletch was Richard, who plays Vernon this week. Oh, fun. Did you also notice, and I don't know if if you knew this, I don't remember how I found out this information, but the two actors who played Charlie, young Charlie and old Charlie, are actually father and son. So officially, all three of them get a cool little fact about themselves at the top of the episode. I love it. With that in mind, would you like to lead us into the recap? Count me down, my lovely assistant. Three, two, one, go. Poof. We have a bunch of old magicians who are trying to just go on with their life. And the one at the bar is being heckled. And then he's all like, oh, I don't think us old fogies should be magicians anymore. And we're like out of the limelight. It's now douchebags like this Chris Angel lookalike who are famous. 
And then he's like, no, I'll try it again. And he survives this trick but doesn't know how. But it kills someone? Do-do-do. I guess the brother's got to come and take care of this. And then it keeps happening. He does tricks, doesn't die, doesn't know how. People end up dead with tarot cards on them. And then they think it's Charlie. And then, ooh, it's not Charlie because Charlie gets killed. And then they think it's Vernon. But then Charlie's like, haha, I'm back from the dead. It turns out I'm magical. And then they save the day by really just intervening. And then Jay really saves the day. And then we get the conclusion to Sam finally going to Ruby saying, I'll do the evil thing I'm not supposed to do because Jay couldn't do it. I will. Time? You got it. Yeah, the brothers themselves, as much as they both had... I think one of my favorite Dean moments this episode in a while and Sam getting like a really nice bit of forward moving narrative. They're really secondary this episode. They really are. And that's how you know that it's entirely a filler. Uh, Well, with that recap done, shall we move into the long game so we can discuss a little more? So the whole, so I'm just gonna, from the get go, address that right away, just because it's probably the most salient point in this episode with regards to like the relationship between the brothers in my opinion and it's the whole conversation between Sam and Dean about whether or not they'll still be alive at 60. It's really heartbreaking watching this knowing how the show ends and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more in story time. Yeah I'm a little um, bummed by that like that scene more than I think I should have been because when he says 60 I'm like oh 60 is not old 80 is old 60 is like 60 is not old. That's why it's heartbreaking, really. I also want us to note how Jeb Dexter is dressed, and I want us to remember how much Dean, like, clocked him as a douchebag from the second that he saw him. If we get other characters dressed like Jeb throughout the series, I don't care what or how, it will be fun, I'm okay with that. We also see a few tarot cards in this episode. The first one is the Ten of Swords, which usually represents betrayal. Which makes perfect sense for what it does, okay. Yeah, exactly. The second one is the hangman, which is usually about surrendering and letting go. That one seems a little more difficult to tie to Jeb, or even just the trick in general. I'm sure we could if we really tried, but... I kind of saw surrendering more with regards to Jay and how sometimes, like, you do have to surrender and let go and kind of just move on gracefully. Okay, yeah, that, that, that side works better. And then the other one that I noticed was death, which, again, is usually about a transition or a transformation. As much as the death card on the surface is death itself, it's usually not the core meaning of it, as you've stated. Death is usually he- there on its white horse to usher in a new era. So that's usually how... A lot of people that I've I've met read the death card. Oh, precisely, which is why I think it works so well with Charlie's death being a fake out in the end. Like that it's not actually death as you would expect it to be, which is often the misconception of the card. And that finally Charlie's actual death comes at the hands of Jay uh, with the card being the magician, you know, about not holding back and, no, and uh, about your potential. Jay's potential to do good and do the right thing and not hold back because of his relationship with him. What's interesting about the Magician is that it's the first card in the Arcana. It's card number one. So you have the Fool, and then you have the the Fool that's like the, the very beginning, the zero. And then you have the Magician, which is number one. So it's usually about the beginning of a journey. 
And so you're right. It talks about not holding back. It talks about manifesting the things that you want, um, feeling very inspired and resourceful. You're at the very beginning of something. And so I think that that works nicely also with the death card, which represents a transition. So I know that we've talked a lot in our post shows about how for me, tarot isn't about like looking into the future, but it's more of a starting point to reflect on yourself, your life and your own circumstances. So I think that if we used that to reflect on this episode and even this season, we could get into a really interesting conversation. Before we close uh, the long game, I just want to talk about the chief moment. Because I know that this is a highly discussed moment in fandom. And so why not add our own voice to the conversation? I watched it really attentively this time, and I really tried not to project anything onto it that wasn't really there. So I noticed that Dean at first is kind of seeming like a mix of like resigned and amused that he's been had by these two old magicians. He's not uncomfortable at first. He sort of right away understands what happened and he's like, all right, I lost this one. It happens, whatever. The moment that he does get uncomfortable is when Chief mentions a safe word and then that's when Dean gags. Now, at no point in the scene was it ever unclear who the Chief is and what his job is. So the discomfort that Dean is showing I can't read as him being uncomfortable with the situation. I read it as being uncomfortable with the reason why he would need a safe word. And again, Dean just came back from 40 years in hell. There's no safe word in hell. It's not play and it's certainly not consensual. And so I really read that moment as a flashback to hell, kind of like the smell comment from last week. Yeah, I, I right away realized that as well. There was more to that scene because of the reaction to the idea of a safe word. Um, I think I, I didn't go to hell right away. I think, in retrospect, it's completely valid. I thought more back to the like idea of Dean's life on the road when he was alone and kind of what he had to go through, what he had to do, kind of in the same vein of like why he knows what chloroform smells like or you know, about certain drug-related things that may have happened. I feel like that may have been kind of in the wheelhouse of things he had to deal with that he didn't really want to think about anymore. And then at the end of the episode, when Jay tells Dean, I killed my best friend yesterday and you want to thank me, it sort of really brought back for me the whole if you can't save Sam, you'll have to kill him storyline. Especially now that we know by the end of the episode that Sam is potentially heading down a dark path again. A dark path to a bar with bloody cocktails? Yep, I gotcha. I'm still convinced it's drinking blood and you can't change my mind. Okay, well, let's 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 keep track of that. With that out of the way, shall we head to story time where they don't reveal that this week yet? <laughs> this week our theme is exceptionalism, and that's basically the belief that something is different, it's the exception. And we tend to hear it discussed often, you know, when we're talking about American exceptionalism, meaning the belief that the United States of America are somehow different from other nations, particularly when it comes to their to like the origins of that nation. Obviously, we don't have time to go and unpack that today <laughs> or ever on this particular podcast. For our intents and purposes, we're going to talk about exceptionalism mostly on an individual level. So like thinking that one person and often ourselves, uh, you know, we're different from other people. We're the exception. When you think about it, it's basically the concept of the movie, like he's just not that into you. And the one thing that I want to add 
when we're talking about exceptionalism is that there's like an underlying implication that the person who is seen as exceptional is seen that way in a good way. When we look at it in this episode, it might look a lot like a superiority complex or just plain arrogance. Uh, so let's keep that in mind as we talk about the choices of Sam and Dean in this episode. Speaking of Dean, uh, what did uh, what did you write about Dean this week? I think for me, Dean in this episode doesn't show exceptionalism at all. He's actually embracing the whole, like, I'm not the exception, I'm the rule. Which again, is very, he's not that into you. And I know I keep referring to that movie, but just like for your information, it came out like two weeks after this episode. So the creative team definitely wasn't drawing from that. Uh, But I just find that it illustrates our points so nicely. And I think this is also, this all sort of happened right around the time that like the whole snowflake insult became a thing online, which is also a way to tell people that they're not unique or exceptional. I just think that it's interesting to think about the historical context in that episode. But if we're going back to Dean, (laughs) I think that like his view of his own life and mortality is like very down to earth, very realistic, and unfortunately very grim, especially when you compare it with Sam. And we'll talk about Sam in a minute. But Dean is arguing that life as a hunter ends one of two ways, bloody or sad. And he doesn't even try to sugarcoat it. He's basically saying that he thinks that both him and Sam are going to be dead before they're 60 and that he hopes that he dies before he gets old. Oh, again, that like breaks my heart to know that like even in the like the good ending for this is dying before 60 so they don't have to get old and sad. Oh, it's like every path ends in bad. One is just the less bad. And I mean, I don't know which one is the less bad, frankly, when you're looking at it that way. I mean, I think I think it's more the case that Dean feels one is the like lesser of evils, but still, they're all. That's yeah, right. No. And I think that's the part that's important is that clearly Dean seems to think that one way is definitely more or definitely better than the other. So I'd actually argue it goes even further than Dean seeing himself as being the rule or unexceptional. He so an example, of this is he sees magic and I'm referring to the not real magic anyway, uh, as unexceptional. Uh, his worldview and frame of reference are just so skewed because he is exceptional. You remember, this is, like, he Dean doesn't believe he is, but Dean's unique and quite exceptional lifestyle, and I know he doesn't consider it glamorous or special, I don't think anyone does, but what he does is amazing, but it leaves much to be desired, like an early grave apparently, uh, but it leaves him without the ability to be impressed by magic, until it literally becomes real magic when he finally sees him perform the uh, the trick with the noose. And unlike Sam, who can appreciate magic for the art form that it is, and this is my moment where I'm, you know, bonding with Sam over the fact that I'm also a fan of close-up magic and I don't care how nerdy that makes me. But it's just this fact that Dean is like, like everything else is boring to him because he's dealt with so much that he's almost like the reverse of exceptionalism. That, like, everything is mundane because he's dealt with the exceptional, and that's now become the standard by which to live. You know what? That's that's really true, and you kind of see it again in the encounter with Chief, in my opinion. Because he, right away, he says, like, I've been had. He doesn't even get mad. He's just like, yep, I con people all this all the time, and, like, I'm the one who got conned this time. It happens. And... 
like, I think that if Sam had been in that situation, he would have been, like, much more annoyed by the whole thing. Oh, yeah, no. Like, I can picture, like, I'm picturing that same, like, bumbling Sam we get whenever he's, like, mistaken a human for a demon or something. Um, With Chief, like, you could just picture him, like, backing away slowly and splashing a little bit of holy water on Chief just in case. (laughs) Oh, Sam! (laughs) No, I don't think so. Especially... Especially when you remember that the water that they throw on people's face on Supernatural is actually half water, half lube. Oh, so maybe Chief would have been less upset than otherwise? Um, you know what, let's let's forget Chief for a moment. What about Sam this week? <laughs> well, so Sam is on the complete other end of the spectrum, I think. You don't say. <laughs> yeah, I know. Eh? What a surprise. <laughs> He's basically like the poster child for exceptionalism in this episode. And to continue with the conversation that he was having with Dean, he's really trying to find a way out. You know, he's like, he doesn't want to think about bloody or sad as the only two options. You know, he, he's bringing up, what about Bobby? Like, he's just really trying to convince himself that he's not going to end up dead or sad. And also, like, um, shame on Dean for, you know, calling Bobby not a good example of being old. If I end up even half the man Bobby is when I'm that age, I'll be considered a success. I think this might have been a little bit of Dean just being very cynical about the whole thing. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think he, I don't think he means it. I think it's the kind of thing where, like, he probably called and apologized to Bobby for unrelated reasons afterwards. Yeah, exactly. He just called him, like, hey, hey, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> And we see that in his conversation with Ruby, too, I think, because she's telling him, you know, you're the only one who can stop her, referring to Lilith. Um, And we've discussed in previous episodes that, like, there's something that Sam can do to boost his powers and that he doesn't want to do anymore. But she's telling him that that is the only way. I'm not even going to say it at this point. You all know it's coming. Just continue. (gasps) I am so excited for you to find out what it actually is. I, you know what? I'm convinced I'm right. Like, I am so thoroughly convinced that, like, whenever, it, like, to the point where, like, I know I'm wrong. So when I do eventually get to it, like, I've, like, bolstered this point for fun. It'll just be even, it'll still be a really great surprise when I get there. And if somehow I am right, the dances I will do. Okay. All right. Good to know. Again, with this, there's this idea that he's an exception and that the the thing that he has to do is also a moral exception because Sam has clearly said that he doesn't want to do that thing anymore. And I think it's safe to say that it's probably because he finds it morally objectionable somehow. But Ruby is working to convince him. And I think that he's letting himself be convinced that even though it's normally a really bad thing in this situation since it's the only way to save the world then it's okay to do it and like obviously thinking about this i'm thinking back to like our previous conversations since about mid season three about sam starting to believe that the ends justify the means yeah i mean at the end of the day this is very much like an excuse to talk about sam's you know like hero's journey and how he really considers himself to be the like hero of the story and like i love ruby you're not helping with the whole you're the only one thing like come on she's clearly trying to manipulate him into doing the thing by the end of this episode at least it appears willing to go full dark side as i think dean once called it 
because he really has this belief that it's the only way, you know, he's taking the leap into the deep end and it will save the world and Dean, he hopes. He truly sees Dean in Jay and wants anything that he can do to stop Dean from becoming Jay eventually. You know, he wants to he wants to embrace the darkness if only to protect others. You know, Sam truly feels he's the exception to all of the rules and that no matter how much he has to hurt himself and make himself the martyr and be the hero, it's truly for the sake of the rest of the world and most importantly, Dean and letting Dean get the life Dean deserves. I'm interested to see that like you linked it back to Dean because I didn't even see it that way, but that's true, especially after the conversation between the brothers when... Sam realizes that Dean is basically saying, like, I'm not going to live until I'm 60, and I hope that I die way before that. So, yeah, in part, the reason why he's doing it is for his family, which I would actually qualify as long game, making bad decisions for family. The alternate title for the show. It's <laughs> <laughs> accurate, yes. Okay, but is there any, and, and there is, I know, like this, this, this is a setup, but is there any other place in the episode where you see exceptionalism show up? So when Jay admits that his goal was to take his own life in the first trick, and that led to the first death being Vance, it's at this moment that Charlie sees what he has to do. He needs to convince Jay how exceptional he is. He basically needs to convince Jay that he's as great as Charlie sees him as. There's the obvious queer reading of Charlie and Jay, and I'm not here to talk about that in this moment. I'm here to talk about love, whether that is platonic love, romantic love, brotherly love, family love, I don't know, and I don't think it's the point I need to make right now. But this was truly Charlie loving Jay. And I really believe him when he said that he would never have offered this everlasting life to any of the other people he worked with before that he really saw something in Jay that was so exceptional that he truly wanted to give him the gift of real magic. And I think love just makes us realize how special someone can be and how exceptional that person is to you when you love them that much. This sort of makes me wonder if Vernon wasn't added specifically so that the parallel between Sam and Charlie and Jay and Dean didn't read the way that it would if you read Charlie and Jay as queer. How many times this episode did they say how much they loved each other? Like he's my brother. Like they rub that in to make it very clear that they were at least not admitting it to each other. And again, I think given their age and the times they grew up in, it makes sense they would not be able to admit this. Because, I'm again, I'm 100% in the camp that Charlie and Jay, there was a romance there, or at least Charlie for Jay. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think Vernon was very, like, ancillary. He was very much, like, a side character for the sake of the plot for, like, well, that one, like, false reveal. The, fa the fake-out and the, like... I, I even read it as, like, I'll give Vernon eternal life just so it's all three of us so it doesn't look like I'm playing favorites because that's how much I love you. And I find it interesting that you're also reading this specifically when it comes to Charlie and Jay, who are unrelated, kind of trying to camouflage their, their romance as, as brotherhood. 
I mean, to kind of like move out of this slightly uncomfortable parallel, I think that we also see exceptionalism in Jay in a different way. There's clearly something fishy or witchy going on when he is able to get out of the of the cuffs and the table, right? But he's just like, la, 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 and just like completely ignoring that and, and thinking, oh, I must be really good instead of confronting the truth. And I found that to be quite humorous. Oh, yeah. Like he fully admits he's like, oh, yeah, no, I have no idea how it happened. Like one second I'm on the table, the next second I'm standing there. And like, you were not concerned by this? <laughs> Being able to pull the three aces. Like, you know, are, are you not wondering like what's happening? But, like, you know what, even the three aces and the fourth in the pocket, like, that I can excuse as, like, I've been practicing my whole life and, like, it's finally paid off. But the, there was a blade rushing towards my face and I suddenly was not there. And also, that dick who was making fun of me at the bar was found dead with stab wounds. Like, like, the, the blinders you were putting on in that moment. Which, you know what, fine, denial is a thing for a reason, it's powerful. It, it was denial, a little bit like what we've seen the brothers doing for other things, right? Just like completely ignoring the issue at hand and just jumping to a ridiculous conclusion. Well, I think we've come to a lot of very good conclusions this week. So shall we head to critical time? Yes, let's jump into critical time the way that the brothers jump into wrong conclusions sometimes. <laughs> Okay, so who was behind this episode? Again, I find, like, I know we just both said it's a filler episode, but I find it almost more interesting to know who writes the filler episodes because they get to, like, they get much more room to play. Right, and I think that this is, so usually, interestingly, this is usually one that I skip um, on my rewatches, but it's not because I don't like it, it's just because we are past mid-season four now, and I usually get very angsty to go and see the rest. And I'm just like, I want to I wanna see, like, I want the story to move forward. And we just had a filler episode with Family Remains, and we have this one, and I'm just like, okay, let's just move on. It's a good one. I like. I actually like what we're learning about the brothers. Yeah, like, one. I think if we were to do a rewatch, I would skip this one, mostly to, you know, save money on tissues. But... Ultimately, like, I, I truly adore this episode, but it doesn't give us something we necessarily need for the larger narrative. We can get through without it, even with a little bit of ending we get with Sam, which I'm sure we'll start next episode off and we'll figure out more of that. Easily, this episode could have been removed and we wouldn't have been missing much in terms of story. So that's good to know. So who wrote this episode? <laughs> Julie Siege wrote this episode and she also wrote It's the Great Pumpkin Sam Winchester this season you know what ultimately I did like that episode I think I liked it more for the like directorial side of just how creepy it was and some of the other like m more creative details than story details but like I liked that one it had some really dark themes too actually so yeah <laughs> and this episode was also directed by Robert Singer I mean, at this point, Robert's name is on so many episodes, it's really hard to, like, make a call, but I like what he does. He's going to be on until season 15, where at that point he is going to be quite um, important. Uh, so as really, as soon as Eric Kripke leaves, he takes on, he takes on a very important role 
uh, in production. Interesting. I mean, generally, like I said, I don't think I, I have any major like, you know criticism of Robert, but I feel like I've generally swayed towards positive vibes from him. Hmm. Would you like to tell us a story this week? I would. Her hand rests upon the deck. She has been shuffling the entire time I spoke to her. She asked me about my life. I answered. She asked me what I was feeling. I answered. She asked me who I was. Not who I was being? I was confused, but I answered. Her hand rested upon the deck as she slowly moved her gaze from those hands to meet my eyes. I don't recall her blinking, but I might be exaggerating. This is a story after all. I think I am at least. Anyways, she drew a card from the deck. I'm certain she must have looked at it, but I don't recall her doing so. And as each of these three cards were revealed, she whispered its name and laid it out in front of me. The Hanged Man. The Devil. Death. I knew coming in here was a bad idea. And if I ever wanted to be certain of this, I knew it now. I feel my mind drift. I begin trying to recall the name and number of that lawyer my boss used to use for our company. He could probably sort out my will, right? As my mind spiraled into the odd corners of the brain you never really think about until you are faced with your own mortality, the woman in front of me spoke. She spoke the name of the cards drawn, and now that I think of it, she likely continued speaking uh, the mental gymnastics of figuring out who at work would have to take care of my caseload if I suddenly was dead was probably in reality only a few seconds. She said, still in that same calm, dreamy voice, like she was trying to not disrupt some spirits who were watching gleefully as I faced certain doom. Stuck. Not necessarily physically stuck, but stuck. Trapped. Something holding you against your will. Enslaved, even. An end. Something is coming to an end. I stared at her. She tilted her head a little bit, smiled, and I may have blushed, and she did that giggle, the kind of giggle you only really see in like a cheesy movie. She began to tidy up her cards, hiding away the three omens of doom she had dealt to me, and she said as I stood up, I hope whatever has you feeling like this passes. I walked out onto the fairly quiet street on a cool autumn night. The sun had set and most non-mystical themed shops were seemingly closed. I walked until I found a hot dog joint, still open, ordered a poutine, and sat alone as I drafted my letter of resignation. An end to being trapped and stuck. I think we kind of weirdly touched on this a little bit in the long game when we kind of looked at all of the tarot cards that were drawn, and how I really think there's like this weird... And I'll be honest, I think I was one of these people for a good time until we started talking tarot more between the two of us, both on and off the show. Where, like, there was always the indication of, like, certain cards did have negative connotation versus positive connotation. And I've really been led to believe, and again, thank you for, you know, bestowing this education upon me, that really every card is just a sentiment and it's how you perceive it. It's really a jumping off point. It's a starting point. And, yeah, like... I feel if anyone drew those three cards without any context, it would be like, oh, good, I'm about to die. But perspective is a powerful tool. It really is. And I think, you know, especially when it comes to tarot, like the way that I look at it is like a, a 
like you said, it's the start of a conversation. Like, let's take these meanings, let's talk about the card a little bit, and let's see how how that applies to me and how basically like I can use this as a way to reflect on my own thoughts and feelings about this. Kind of like a conversation with a friend, but with cards. Speaking of conversation with friends, anything to share with us this week? This episode starts with Jay doing a trick for the bartender. You talked about that in your recap. And she's indulging him. And we do find out that she's kind of indulging him because she feels bad for him. There's also the fact that she might not know if Jay is going to tip her, if she doesn't actually act like she's fascinated by a, is this your card type of trick, you know? And that's really basically the definition of emotional labor, where a worker has to put in extra work that specifically has to do with preserving people's emotions in order to make sure that they still get paid. And for anyone listening to us from outside of North America, let me just highlight here that this happens in Canada, but I know that it's even worse in the United States, where your wage as someone who can receive tips, so like servers and bartenders, for example, your wage is regulated differently than other people's wages. Like the legal minimum wage is often much lower for folks who work those jobs because it's assumed that part of your income will be made in tips. So tips are basically no longer tips. They're vital to you being able to make a living. And so Vance, the, the, the magician literally wearing a satin cape, the actual, and to use the, the show's words, douchebag, like he's acting like a douchebag to Jay, but he's also acting like a douchebag towards the bartender. And, and to me, that's also why eventually she kind of tells him, like, just let the old guy finish his trick. Because she's getting annoyed. She's like, this, you're, you're screwing potentially with my ability to receive proper pay for this interaction. And so I know that this episode is trying to make her look insensitive in that moment, but I kind of wanted to clear up that she's literally trying to make rent here. And um, let's remember that before we judge her comrades. Beautifully well said. I truly didn't know where this topic was going this week. I was really like, I'm following. And I'm like, where are we going? Oh, I hate tipping culture. I, oh, like it's a conversation that I'm sure many of us have had before who at least live in parts of the world where tipping culture is so unfortunately required. I know I've had this conversation a million times and I have vowed if I ever was in a position where I had people working for me that I had to pay, I like, sure, give them tips. I don't care. They're getting paid a proper living wage or else. Sorry, I'm very, very vitriol about that one. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily like that everywhere, but still, like, it's it's just something to keep in mind that there are literally, there is literally a structural reason why servers have to be, quote-unquote, have to be nice to you, because it affects their wages drastically. You know, if I'm having a bad day and I'm snippy with a coworker. My wages don't get cut. Let's go and listen to what our community has to say. Yes, please. This week, we have a message from Jose. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. Where do you see exceptionalism in Supernatural? What do you think happened between uh, Chief and Dean? Uh, be careful with that one, please. To respond to something else we discussed today, 
you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Hi, Mary Andrew. My name is Josie, and I think I want to talk about John Winchester as a hunter. Uh, I'm listening to your uh, episode about Time is on My Side, and I don't think is, he is bad at his job, but I don't think his job is being a hunter. I think I think he's um, really smart, really dedicated, really stubborn because he's a Winchester, and his main goal is find what took Mary from him, and everything else doesn't matter. Like his children don't matter that much to him, you know, considering. So I think he left a lot of unfinished case or sloppy cases because he probably found um, a clue to what killed Mary. And that was priority number one. So he left everything as he did in the pilot with the woman in white. He just left. In that case, he, he asked for backup from, uh, from Dean. And we don't know if he did that for every other case that he left. But the thing is, I'm not sure. He's, he's not a good hunter, but he's a good demon hunter. So that's my thought. I really like your podcast. Thank you for listening to me. Bye. It was that moment, Jose, where, first of all, thank you for the voicemail. Like, let's just, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself because I'm so excited. Thank you. That was beautiful. You're right. We've criticized, I mean, we've criticized John Winchester for many reasons correctly, but there was always that lingering bit of, like, him leaving cases unfinished or kind of sloppy notes, and I was always sort of just like, it feels so out of character. It feels like shitty writing. Your point of view, your perspective, the idea that he was just so obsessed. Like, I literally go back, like, I mean, let's do some classic literature here and go back to Moby Dick. You know, when you are so obsessed with your white whale that everything else is secondary, including your current job and your children, that it really can make you look bad. So you're right. He was... He was a bad parent. He was a subpar hunter. He was a subpar partner, we've learned about in some cases. But those are all things he... I don't want to say he chose to be bad at, but he let himself fail at because they weren't the thing he was after. Yeah, so first off, merci beaucoup, José, de nous avoir envoyé ce beau message. We're... Yeah, I, I had to. I'm so sorry. This reframing of John as not a hunter, but basically Mary's Avenger is like, I think, very important for me in understanding him. Yeah, my very first words to you are going to be thank you for that. I mean, I'm not going to reiterate exactly what you, Drew, and you, Jose, just said, because like, that, that's it. That's it. That's the missing link that um, I had been missing. And that's, yeah, that's why. I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm like, oh, okay. That all makes sense now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Again, it's like we've been looking at this giant board of red string and like pins and you just like 
adjusted one, like, the littlest bit. Just like, how did none of you see this really amazing point? And now it's like, we get it! All of a sudden, it no longer looks like a mess. It just makes sense, like... So with these amazing realizations, Drew, do you have a reflection and call to action for us? This episode and the very specific reflection I had come at a very, in a positive way, weird timing. Let me explain. I truly cherish a friendship, especially one that can lay dormant for a long time. And I kind of see that in the, like, longer-lasting friendships, the ones that have a little more strength to them because they can go dormant and reconnect. And I see that in our three effective leads this episode, Vern and Jay and uh, Charlie. I really love reconnecting with people. And, like you know, that, like, I hope everyone has this in their life in a positive way where you have that friend who you haven't heard from in, like, months and they just text you out of the blue, like, yo, did you hear this weird piece of news? Or, hey, I saw this and thought of you. Like, and it's just, it's, it it, it means so much because it means that even though you're not top of mind because you're not talking every day, that you're still so connected to them subconsciously that you are still, like, a single, like, snap of the fingers away from being connected. Bringing this up even more importantly now because Mother's Day just passed and this, to me, is an excuse. Yeah, I know it's a corporate holiday. Let's drop all that pretense for a second. But to me, it is the mental reminder to reach out to the women in my life who I truly consider to be marvelous people, but just our lives have gone different ways and I don't get to speak to them every day or connect with them as often as I'd like to, uh, whether we used to work together, used to go to school together or whatever the case might be. I love having that moment to reconnect and I know it seems cheesy to use Mother's Day as an excuse to do so, but it makes it really hard to forget. (laughs) And, you know, whether it's someone I haven't spoken to in, like, I I feel bad. I look at our text conversation and literally it's the birthday message back and forth and then the previous Mother's Day. Like, but we have some of those heartfelt conversations in those days. Or whether it's someone I get to speak to every day who I get to look up to and be admire and know how wonderful they are, both as a woman and a human and a mother. In any order. But you know how important you are. Love you. And what would be... So So my call to action is just to reconnect with people that I care about and remind them how amazing they are, if that wasn't clear. Now that I'm done rambling and showering you with praise, what would you like to say this week about your calls to action and reflections? Mine is a lot more selfish because the theme for this week also really hit pretty close to home for me. Because I'm... So I'm heading down a path where... I hopefully will lead me to academia. Um, And it's a field where you need to present yourself as exceptional all the time. But you also can't think of yourself as exceptional because otherwise you're going to be disappointed all the time. And I'll give you an example. So like if you want to get a grant to pay for your research or a scholarship, in my case, you have to show the sponsor that Like, you have to show the sponsor why your research is research that should be funded and why your team are the best people to conduct this invaluable research. And that might be true, but you you also run the risk of, like, if you really believe that with your whole heart, that it's going to be very difficult for you to cope with the inevitable rejections that you're going to get because you will be rejected. Like, that's not... A question of if it's a question of when you do you win some but you lose a lot also in academia 
I just don't really know what to do with this information. But talking about this episode sort of helped me realize that. It's like you've made the reflection and like I fully see what you see. But then the call to action, it's like you're missing a piece of the puzzle still. I, I get that. And like I want to sit here and be like the like you know I'm your you know I'm your cheerleader I'm in your corner like I I'm I I know you can do all these things I'm the one who's gonna inflate your ego because I believe all these things about you rightfully so, but like I also know how hard it is to go into something and give it your all and even as you said you're gonna lose a lot of them and that's just unfortunately the reality of a numbers game. I don't care how many you've won or lost a loss still hurts. You know, I... That's the thing, like, it, it, so just as a, as a very quick anecdote, I, whenever I apply for an award or a scholarship, I always go in thinking that I'm not going to get it. Not because I don't think that I could get it, but just because I'm like, there are so many people applying for this. Like, it's, it's almost a question of luck. Of course, it has to do with excellence and the, the dossier and the whatever, but like, really, to a certain degree, I almost like to think of it as luck because it's, it's, it seems so abstract. But there was this one opportunity not too long ago where I applied because I was like, I am a shoe-in for this. Like, this is, this this thing, that's for me, for sure. Like, I, I, you know how they say that women tend to not apply for things because they're missing, like, one tiny thing, right? Like, I don't do that anymore. I apply even if I'm missing stuff. But in this particular case, I had everything and above, so in my mind, I was like, I'm going to be really positive about this one. And that's like, that's the one that I didn't get. And honestly, like, it really hurt because I really thought that it, it, it made sense. And clearly somebody else was better than me in this particular competition. But so that's kind of what I'm saying about like, of course, you have to sell yourself as like the best person to be able to do this job and you have to believe it and that's fine. But you can't really fully believe it because otherwise you're going to crash and burn and it's going to be really painful. Well, I think if anyone suffered the most, it was whoever this group was that didn't take you and clearly must be looking back on this episode and regretting it. Well, <laughs> I don't think they're listening to this. But anyway, it was just a little a little thing. <laughs> You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to our bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Jose for their message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward, and leave us a rating and review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. This week, we have a message from... I don't even know who it's from. Damn, I tried to steal it from you. And I yeah, I know. I was like, oh, you already know? Oh, cool. Who is it from? I don't know. I'm going to have a look <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Usually, you, uh, I feel like you always know who it is.